Man, hope you all had a great Christmas. We had a great time here at the Vine on Christmas Eve. Uh, packed the place out. It was really good. And so today we're going to be continuing in our series in the book of Matthew. So why don't you grab a Bible, either paper or digital. And Laurel's going to read our text for today. It's uh, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 starting in verses 1, 1 through 12. Matthew 3, 1 through 12. Let's, let's take a look at this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who has spoken by the, way, by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would come and help us now. Pray that you would help me speak as I should. May it be nothing but what is a reflection of your heart. And Lord, help us to um, cherish your word, help us to know um, you through it and know ourselves through it. And Lord, we pray that you would accomplish your purpose for your people this morning through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in the last few weeks, we've started this series in the book of Matthew, and we've spent two chapters looking at the birth of Jesus, right? Focusing on the birth of Jesus. Now, what Matthew as an author is going to do for his original audience and us is to fast forward about 30 years. And now we have a bit of a shift away from the baby Jesus to a different historical person, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a wild man. We're going to see that in a little bit. But let's look at verse 1, and we're just going to walk through this text. Verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching... So he was a communicator. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here Matthew is just basically summarizing John's essential message, right? 
And it was this. It was repent. Repent. This is the thing that he was focused on. Biblically, repentance means to change direction. Or to have a change of heart. A turning away from sin and a turning towards God. Turning away from sin, turning towards God. It's, just not, it's not just stopping doing certain things, but it's also stopping and starting doing new things. Like turning away from sin, stop staring at sin, sin stop consuming sin, and start turning towards God, consuming who God is for us. So John comes, verse 2, repent. That's the message. That's the, that's the verb. That's the action point, right? Repent. But then the next logical question follows it. If someone just calls you to repent, you might say something in response. What, what would you say? You'd say, well, why? What's the reason? Right. And that's what he gives us here. He tells us, what is the reason? Well, here's the reason. Verse 2, repent. Comma, for, here comes the reason, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, recently uh, in our home, we invited our neighbors in. Traditionally, we do this um, around Christmas time. We want to be hospitable. We want to get to know our neighbors. We want to have good relationships with our neighbors. And so one of the just small, creative ways we try to do that on an annual basis is have people in. You know, it's a very normal thing, a Christmas open house, and we did that. And my wife does an amazing job hosting people, making them feel loved through what she prepares. And, and here's the deal. Our neighbors are important to us. And if important people are coming to your house... We're probably going to do some things to prepare, right? That just makes sense. We might clean up a bit. We might prepare some food. We might break, break out some nice drinks or whatever. Now, let's take it a step further. Let's say your favorite whatever. Uh, let's say your favorite movie star is coming to your house for dinner. Just think of who that would be, right? Now, what are you going to do? Well, that, maybe that's going to take it up a notch in specialness. And uh, you're going to do something unique. You're going to deep clean the house, maybe. You're going to... Uh, get the best food. You're going to get the best drinks. You might bathe the children, right? Well, if we can think along those lines in our world today, that's very similar to what John is doing. This is how John functioned in the life of God's people at that time. He's saying, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, another way to understand that would be God is coming to your house. In a very unique and special way. So that demands a response, right? That probably demands some type of preparation. And what did he say the preparation was? He said the preparation was repentance. Repentance. Turn from the sin that you're wallowing in and turn toward Jesus. Turn toward Jesus. If God himself is coming to visit you, how do you make him feel special? How do you show that this is a very unique occurrence? Now, here's where we can get really caught up. Our hearts are, have this gravitational pull towards legalism. Our hearts have this gravitational pull towards trying to prove ourselves to God, to make ourselves worthy. And so if you have, like in my mind, you're thinking, okay, God's going to come to my house. What am I going to do? Well, I'm really going to clean it now. 
as if he doesn't already know that there's dirt under your floorboards. As if he doesn't already know that there's nothing you can do to make that house absolutely spotless to the point of perfection, right? So it's not, the, the response is not, but I, well, if God's coming, then I'm just going to clean myself up as, as, as best as I can. I'm going to try to just work really, really hard, and I'm going to make myself perfect, make everything perfect. That's not the response that he's looking for. Jesus doesn't want a clean house in that kind of a way. When John says repentance, the equivalent would be he just wants an admonition that your house is dirty. And you're asking for his help to clean it. You see that? And we know that King Jesus, if you can endure the analogy, is the most gracious, loving house cleaner ever. You with me? John says, turn from your sin, embrace him. Turn from your sin and help him. I'm sorry, and welcome him in. When John says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it just means that God is drawing near in a unique way. His rule and his reign is breaking into history in a unique way. So that declaration demands a response, and repentance is that response. That's verses 1 and 2. Let's look at verse 4. Let's jump down here to verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now let's just stop right there. Just as a quick side note, this is a, this is a weird dude. John the Baptist is a weird guy. But here's something I want you just, just as a side note, it's not really the point of the text, but I want you to encourage you with this. All throughout the Bible, we see that God loves to use weird people. God always uses people on the margins. God always uses the, the kids that don't have it all together. He likes to hang with the, the not-so-cool kids. And we're going to see in a second why that is. But typically speaking, those that have it all together are prideful and have no need of God. But oftentimes the weirdos, they're aware of their need. And so if you feel on the margins, if you feel like you don't quite fit in, I mean, take heart. God says the kingdom is with those that are the least. And we're going to see when, when, uh, when Jesus rattles off the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, that he's going to say some things that are going to remind us that the kingdom of God is with the weirdos. The kingdom of God is with those that are painfully uncool. Like Switchfoot has a song called The Beautiful Letdown. And, and, and God's not all about those that have it all together. He's with those that are, and the song says, painfully uncool. Dropouts, losers, fools. God shows up with those people. Why? Because those people, not always, but usually are no, aware of their need and are willing to admit it. So if you feel like you're on the margins and you're willing to, to confess your need, man, God is for you. God is with you. I just want you to see that. God loves to hang out with weird people. Verse 5. So John came, oh, sorry, let me summarize. Verse 4, John's coming, he's preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then verse 5, we see the response of the people that he was preaching to. Okay, verse 5, here's the response. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan. So this is a lot of people. This is a big deal. This is like, you know, 
someone standing up at the Capitol, let's say, and preaching, and all of Madison is coming to hear. That's the kind of picture I want you to have in your mind, okay? Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John the Baptist is kind of like a heavenly meteorologist, right? So what's a meteorologist do? A meteorologist predicts the future. Um, The meteorologist tells you what the weather is going to be like in the next 24, 48 hours or whatever. So if the, if the meteorologist says, hey, it's going to be 70 and sunny tomorrow, well, you might make some plans accordingly. You might say, hey, let's have some friends over. Let's get the grill out. Let's get the yard games out. We'll have a good time. If the meteorologist says, hey, it's going to be massive thunderstorms with hail and 80-mile-per-hour uh, winds, well, you might also make plans accordingly, right? You're going to get everything out of your yard, and you're going to you know, not let your kids go play outside in that kind of weather, right? Well, this is how John the Baptist is. If John the Baptist says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning God is drawing near right now in a very unique way in history, we've already established the response. The response is repentance. And so here we see God's people just taking that seriously, okay? Um, If we'll continue with the analogy, it's like, The meteorologist said, tomorrow's going to be 70 and sunny. Thus, we're going to believe him. That's a faith mechanism. Do I believe the meteorologist or not? If I do believe them and I think that they're trustworthy, then I make plans accordingly. And that's all that we're seeing happening here in this text. The people heard the word. They heard what what John had to say. And they planned accordingly. They they obeyed. They did what he said to do. And that's verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says, they came out. And they confessed their sins. They repented of their sins. And then as a result, they, bap- they were baptized. Baptism is just a symbol, an outward sign of an inner reality. It's a symbol of a changed heart. It's a symbol of a changed heart. It's the outward symbol of this inward reality. So basically in these first, I'm sorry, in verses 5 and 6, we see just the natural, normal process of what it means to follow God. John comes as God's megaphone, as God's mouthpiece, as a prophet, and says, here's the deal. The kingdom of God is is here. It's coming. It's, It's in the process of being revealed in a way that you've never seen before. So that demands a response. The response is repentance. And then the people have to go, okay, is John... I mean, he is a bit of a weird dude, but are we going to believe him or not? He's weird, but I think we're going to still believe him. And they do. By faith, they trust in in the word of God. He was speaking for God. They're they're, they're trusting in God's word. And then what do they do? They act upon it. Okay? They weren't just talk. They were also walk. See how that works? This is just the, the normal process of the Christian life. We hear with ears to hear. We believe by faith, and then we act accordingly. And for these guys, it was confession, repentance, and and baptism. And for many of you, that's going to be the normal way of becoming a Christian. These guys weren't Christians yet, okay? They still practiced baptism in ancient Judaism. Um, But but that's not the point. The point is they, they trusted the word, okay? They trusted the word, all right? Now, that's kind of a summary of one through six now we kind of turn a corner, and things get a little, a little touchier, a little dicier, okay? 
and we've got some resistance. And this, this, this section of the text, I think, is going to give us a great window into something we have to watch out for when it comes to our lives as followers of Jesus. See, the rest of this text is going to serve as a hard-hitting warning to most of us in this room who are probably religious people, church people. It's probably most of us. Not all of us, and that's great. If you're not, we're so glad you're here. Um, But this is going to serve as a warning for professional Christians, for churchy-type people. All right, let's look at verse 7. But when he saw many of, so he's talking about John here. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, so John is not pulling punches here, is he? He's foreshadowing strong words that we'll also see from Jesus in chapter 23. We'll get there in in a few months, I'm sure, where Jesus goes after the Pharisees. He just calls out their hypocrisy. And he, some of the harshest words of judgment come from Jesus' mouth towards the religious elite of his day. But it'd be important for us to ask, why does John go so hard after these guys? Why does Jesus go so hard after these guys? And we get a clue as to why in verse 9. Look at verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, what's that all about? What's this statement all about? Well, we have to know a little bit about Abraham. Who was Abraham? What did he represent? And why was that so meaningful for this first audience? So Abraham was the guy many, many centuries before this text that God came to. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 12. God just sovereignly, lovingly took Abraham and said, Abraham, guess what? I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use you to start this whole plan of redemption to save the world through Jesus Christ. It's going to culminate in Jesus, his death, life, death, and resurrection. But it's going to start with you, Abraham. It's going to start with you. And so Abraham was very special, very special in the the minds and the thoughts of Jewish people. He was like the the start of it all. And they were associated with him as his his great, 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 you know, a thousand great grandkids, Okay. And the religious elite, these Pharisees and Sadducees who knew their Bible well, who were the leaders, who had power, they they took a lot of pride in the fact that, man, we come from Abraham. We've got it together. He's our guy. And he's connected to us uniquely in ways that he's not connected to anybody else. Like, we're special, right? And so they're focused on this outward lineage. They're focused on this external, like... um, Whatever, like family tree. They're trusting in a spiritual genealogy to make them right with God. Like, we're descendants from Abraham, and since, he, and since Abraham was good with God, and we're connected to him biologically, then, then automatically we'll be good with God too. That was their mindset. And John says, not so fast. 
Your security with God is not based on your religious associations. Your security with God is not based on your spiritual lineage. Your security with God is not based on your proximity to significant figures in Jewish history. It's not about those outward things. God doesn't look at those outward things. He looks at the heart. It's about a a heart that doesn't take pride in a certain genealogy. That's outward. Like, uh, an example for us could be, like, my grandpa went to UW, and he's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and so thus I should get a full-ride scholarship to UW. Like, no, that's not how it works. John's, John's just saying the same thing. These guys were filled with pride in their spiritual heritage. And John's just saying, you think God needs you? God doesn't need you. God can create a people for himself in the snap of fingers. That's what he says, the stuff about making kids out of rocks. He can do whatever he wants. God doesn't need you, is his point. Like if, if, if there's any reason to be humble, it's that. God doesn't need you. He's self-sufficient. He's omniscient, omnipresent. He doesn't need you. Verse 9, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So the right response then is never pride. Like it's impossible to look at an all-sufficient God of the universe and have a big head. Right? You get that? You feel that? And that's what was missing with these religious leaders of Jesus' day. And John's just calling them out. Say, guys, you don't get it. This is crazy. The only response in light of a God of the universe who's all sufficient and, and humans who are not is repentance. God doesn't need you, but you need him. So the only right response is repentance. Turn from your pride and turn towards God. Admit that your house is dirty. Then you will find the most merciful house cleaner ever to walk into your house. But apart from that as your starting point, it's impossible to live a life that's pleasing to God. That's why John says verse 8. Look at verse 8. He tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Meaning, if you, if you put the pride aside, embrace humility, admit that you're so needy and that you're a sinner, that's going to produce from your life repentance. And repentance, when you're humbled and needy and dependent on God, and you lay yourself wide open to God and say, God, I got nothing, but you have everything, so I'm open to be used by you. Fill me with your spirit. And then that's exactly what God chooses to do. He causes beautiful fruit to be grown on the branches of your life. Good works, a beautiful life, the the love of God and the love of people. But you can't do it unless you're starting with repentance. Repentance is the key. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's just saying to these guys, you're not repentant, and so there's no good fruit in your life. If you're really spiritually elite, then we would see fruit. We don't see fruit. We just see, uh, we see a, a, a tomb filled with dead men's bones is what Jesus said in Matthew 23. 
whitewashed tombs. Looks really good on the outside. It's vacuous on the inside. There's no fruit there. There's no fruit. But John is saying, if, if you have turned from sin, repentance, and turned towards God, over time, that's going to look like fruit bearing. That's going to look like fruit bearing. Now, it might not happen as fast as we would like. It might not happen as perfectly as we would like in this life. But it will happen. It will happen. But it'll never happen unless humility before God that looks like confession of sin is the starting point. And that's what John is getting at with the religious elite of his day. Now John is going to close with some more hard words. Let's look at verse 11. Now he's going to turn and talk about Jesus. He says this, I baptize you with water for repentance. Again, he's emphasizing repentance, turning from sin, turning towards God. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what he's saying is, I'm only taking it so far. I'm going to draw your attention to the greatness of God and your, your need to be humble and repent and confess your sin. But Jesus is going to take it a step further. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what John is doing here is he's just foreshadowing Acts chapter 2. When Jesus' followers would receive in dramatic fashion the giving of the Holy Spirit. And from there they have unique power from on high, the Bible says. They're clothed with power from on high to do things that people before them could never do. To do things that even Jesus couldn't do. Not that he couldn't do, but they didn't do. When Jesus was on earth, not that many people got saved, right? He had, you know, a few handful of followers. They all deserted him. But once the Holy Spirit comes, and this is just what Jesus predicted. Jesus said, you're going to do greater things than I'm doing if I go away. He goes away, sends the Holy Spirit. Guess what happens in the book of Acts? 3,000 people get saved in one day through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus waited till he sent his spirit to empower his church to do that. And that's just what John is saying here. There's coming a day when there's going to be a unique power from the Holy Spirit that's going to enable ministry, that's going to enable obedience, that's going to enable love for God and love for people in ways that people have never seen before. This is the creation of the church, okay? So he's just foreshadowing all that. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit produces these things in our lives. But then he closes here with a warning. Let's look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, and he's going to come with more power than I've got, John the Baptist says. He comes with Holy Spirit power. He's going to give it to you. He's going to empower, create and empower the church. But this message of Jesus, it's going to divide. It's going to divide. And there's really only two camps of people when it comes to Jesus. 
Either you're going to be prideful and say, forget you, Jesus, I'm good. I can save myself. I have no needs for you. Or you're going to say, Jesus, I see that you're God. I see that you're my savior. I see that you're perfect, that you died for my sins. You're raised to life so that I could be raised to life too with the penalty of sin defeated. And you're going to be my righteousness. And I'm not going to trust in my own righteousness. I'm going to trust you to just simply give it to me by faith. Those are the two teams. One is pride, one is humble. And John is just saying there's coming a day. He's foreshadowing the day of judgment. When the proud will be separated from the humble. When those that, that hate Jesus or reject Jesus on the one side, those that love Jesus and are humble before him on the other. And he's just saying to the religious elite that we're prideful. You guys don't think you have any needs. But be warned. There's coming a day when you're going to need King, King Jesus. And now is the time for repentance. Now is the time for Repentance. It's appointed once for a man once to die and then face the judgment. That's what Hebrews says. It's appointed for a man once to die and then face the judgment. And John's just saying the same thing here, guys. The time is now. Put your pride aside. Confess. This is just the, 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 the drum that he's beating is repentance and confession. Repentance and confession. The only way... To, to, to experience life and blessing on the day of judgment that he's talking about here is through repentance, through confession and repentance. Just being honest, not hiding, not pretending, right? Turning from sin, turning towards God. That's the only way to stay alive on the day of judgment. Making Jesus your greatest treasure, not sin. Like why would we want to drink from the sewer when John chapter 7, Jesus comes and he says, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you living water that satisfies. It doesn't run out. It's an ever-flowing well of living water. Why would you want to drink from the sewer? So John tells his first audience and us, there's coming a day of judgment. And on that day, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who you're associated with. It doesn't matter that your granddad was a preacher. It doesn't matter that you came to church every Sunday. It doesn't matter that you went to church camp. It doesn't matter that you gave your money to the local church. The only thing that matters will be this. How did you respond when you heard the news that the kingdom of God has drawn near in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from the dead? That's it. And then how you lived in light of it. If you believed it, if you really trusted it, that's going to look like something in your life. It's going to look like something in your life. And John's just reminding us that those who hear this message and respond with repentance and confession of sin will find themselves safe from the just wrath of God on sin. And, and the, the just wrath of God on the pride of humans who trust in themselves. So I just want to close by just reminding us of one thing. According to this text, John is emphasizing so strongly the power of confession and repentance. Repentance, turning from sin, and then having it come out of your mouth that I have a sin problem. And in light of this word about the day of judgment, I think it's just good for us to be reminded that truly, even though it doesn't feel this way, that truly the most safest place on earth is being honest about your sin with God 
and with one another. That's the safest place. What's, what's really insane is when we try to reenact Genesis chapter 3, where our, our, our forefathers, our, our, our first parents, were exposed in their sin, and what did they do? They hid. As if God didn't know where they were. Hiding is so dumb. If, if God is who he says he is, But the problem is we do it all the time. We hide from God like he doesn't know. We try to anesthetize ourselves so we don't have to think about the ways that we're sinning against him and and others. And then we fail to actually confess. And then we wonder why we're just riddled with all of these anxieties, problems, can't sleep at night, tormented by our sin. And John is just saying so clearly, there's an easy way out of that. It's repentance. It's turning from it and confessing it. And I think for most of us, the confession part with God is pretty easy. It's the confession part to one another that's harder because it feels scary. Why does it feel scary though? Why does it feel scary? We fear rejection. Well, if God isn't rejecting me, why am I fearing your rejection? We're fearing judgment. Well, there's no condemnation in Christ, the Bible says, so why am I fearing your judgment? I think it's really important for us to be self-reflective on why it is that we might hesitate and want to hide. Like, there's so much superficiality that still exists in our church that I just want to cut the heart out of, right? Because what it does is it really goes against the grain of the community poster over here. You're never going to have true community when there's hiding. Hiding lives at the surface. Yeah, everything's fine. I'm good. Yep. It's prayer night at city groups. Anything going on in your life? Eh, crickets. That's not what our church is called to be. And the reason why we call you to it is because the Bible says so clearly that it's for our blessing. There's no blessing pulling an Adam and Eve event and hiding in the bushes. No, that's not blessing. Blessing is Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Confess your sins one to, I'm sorry, James 5. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. There's no hiding. Confession is where blessing is. Repentance is where blessing is. And when that happens... Admit it to the Lord, admit to one another, there's a deep unity that happens that's in some ways unbreakable. That's the way God designed us. God didn't design us to hide from one another. God designed us to be united. Like he's united to himself in the Trinity. He creates us in his image, and thus we're designed to be united to one another as well. Are you with me? And so the quickest way to do that is to be honest. That's just another way of saying, don't lie. Tell the truth. It's so good to tell the truth. So whatever you're dealing with, our church is not going to be a place where we hide. Now, there's, there's discernment and there's, there's a time. When, I'm not saying that you should just like everybody line up here and blab all of their sins and we all each take a turn at the mic. You know what I mean? That's not what we're going to do. But what I am saying is that if you're in a safe space like your city group, let's go for it. If, if you're in a safe place where people are committed to loving each other, or you're in the lobby and just talking, hey, how's it going? Well, we can talk to each other. We don't have to hide from each other. Because the gospel is true. Jesus died for our sins, was raised from the dead. There's no condemnation now for those that are in Christ. So what does that mean? That means freedom. 
to not have to be prideful like the Pharisees and cover it all up. No, I've got myself all together. Check out how spiritual I am. That's baloney. And we're going to see in chapter 5 of Matthew 5, we're going to see in chapter 5 of Matthew that the kingdom of heaven is with those that are broken in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is with those that don't think they have it all together. The kingdom of heaven was those that, that feel a poverty when it comes to their spiritual state. And that's where unity is going to come. That's where unity is going to come. That's where power for this church is going to come. Not the way of the Pharisees, but the way of John the Baptist calling for repentance and confession and then living in light of it. Let's pray. Father, would you help us take this message seriously? Would you help us embrace the truth of your word? Would you help us to be strong in the strength that you provide by the power of your spirit? We need your help. We are needy. So we ask for your help as a, as a, as a child, trust of mother or father to provide. We trust you to provide. In Jesus' name, amen.